you start hearing the same thing from different angles and different people's story and you start realizing, hey, there's a pattern here. There's a pattern of success here. And if you follow that pattern of success, usually success will follow for you as well. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the Surgeon Syndicate. Today, we are diving into the second half of our conversation with Thomas Castelli, CPA. This is amazing stuff, especially when we consider how much we pay as taxes, as doctors, and tend to be in this high tax bracket to have ways to decrease our tax burden ethically, legally, and help us keep more of our hard-earned money is amazing. So back to the discussion with Thomas. So you mentioned there again, the real estate professional status, and I think we've touched on this on some other shows, but not with an accountant. Because this was something I heard about years later, and I had no idea. And after I finished medical school, my wife decided to be a full-time mom, which was awesome. But at the same time, she kind of went back and forth on how much am I contributing? And I want to have something that I'm helping the family financially, because most doctors are married to somebody who has a professional status education, just the circles you operate in and the people you're attracted to. So I've seen this several times. You got one that's working and one that, or might be a doc working part-time or that they're stay-at-home like my wife. And they've got considerable skills beyond what they're doing and they'd like to do more. And when I first heard about the real estate professional status, I thought, how did I not know about this? Because it can be a game changer from a tax standpoint. Yeah, for sure. So let me break it down like this. So uh, I know we went through a lot of the tax benefits of real estate already, but real estate is under the tax code passive by default. So what does that mean? That means that the losses that you generate from rental real estate, again, by this non-cash expense called depreciation, that's this lovely expense we get as real estate investors, it cannot typically offset your earned income. It can only offset other passive income and other passive incomes, typically rental real estate or perhaps interests in business you don't operate in. What the real estate professional status does is allow you to take losses from your rental properties and use it to offset your earned income and other forms of non-passive income. The way you could do that and the way that you qualify as a real estate professional is you have to spend more than 750 hours and more than half your total working time in a real property trader business. Now, once you do that, you can take the losses from rental real estate and use it to offset your earned income. Now, the challenge is that many people, especially doctors who have high incomes, is you're typically working full-time or you're running a practice full-time you're not going to be able to meet that more than half your total working time requirement. It just doesn't work out that way. However, if your spouse can qualify, right, then if you file a joint tax return, as many married couples do, then you can take the losses from the rental real estate and use it to offset the high income. So basically, you have one spouse who's typically the high income earner, one spouse who will run the real estate, and you'll be able to take advantage of this strategy. So when you say losses, so these losses, though, can be paper losses due to depreciation and cost segregation and things like that. It's not that the first time I heard it, I'm like, well, I don't want to invest in properties that lose money. Right, right, <laughs> so right. I put it against my income. Yeah, yeah. And I could break down kind of how that works briefly. So basically what happens when you buy a property, say you say buy a million dollar property, right? You're not deducting the cost of that property on your tax return the day you buy it. Instead, it's 
depreciated a little bit over time. For residential real estate, for example, it's depreciated over 27 and a half years. So let me kind of break down. It's not million dollar property. So the first thing I just want to mention is that land is never depreciated. So you're going to have to break out a portion for land. And there's ways to do that. We don't have to discuss that today. I think it's going too much maybe into the weeds. But let's just say that 80% of that million dollar property is the building. So that's 800,000. Now, if you divide that by 27.5, you're going to get a $29,000 depreciation expense every year that would be deducted on your profit and loss statement. However, there's something called bonus depreciation and bonus depreciation rapidly accelerates part of the building's value. Now, you buy a building, it's typically not just the building, right? You have the structural components, you have appliances, you'll have fixtures, carpets, all that good stuff. Now, what a cost segregation study does is it breaks down the components of that building into its useful life. Now, the useful life of the various components are typically 5, 7, 15, and 27 and a half year property. And anywhere between 20 to 30% of that property could be reallocated to this 5, 7, and 15 year life. So let's just say in this $800,000 example, 25% is reallocated. So now you have $200,000. Now here's the magic of bonus depreciation. Uh, so now bonus depreciation currently as of this recording in 2023 is at 80%. So you'd be able to take an 80% deduction of this 200,000. So it's $160,000. So imagine this, right? You have a property, you have its income, you have all your expenses, and then you have this big expense of $160,000. That's going to create a sizable loss. If we just, for the sake of this example, just said it was going to be 160K and this was able to offset your W 2 or your income from your practice at the 37% tax bracket, you're looking at tax savings of $59,200 of money you would be saving in taxes, which is not insignificant. So, just correct me if I got this right. So, if we combine this from what we talked about earlier with the 1031, so if you buy a property, you do a cost segregation, you write off all this five and seven year cost segregation. So you get a bunch front loaded on your depreciation that you could then turn against your income if your spouse is now being the real estate professional managing right. it. So you get this big tax benefit, but with depreciation, it gets recaptured unless you do something like a 1031 where you right. roll it over. Right. So in five to seven years, you could sell this property, buy another one, roll it in through a 1031, and do the cost segregation all over again. Right, right, right. That's a strategy a lot of people employ. They'll buy the property, they'll go ahead, they'll depreciate it, they'll take the benefits from it. Then when it comes time to sell, in order to like pretty much minimize or eliminate their exposure to that depreciation recapture tax, they'll go ahead and do a 1031 exchange, kicking the can down the road, and they buy the next property, do another cost seg, and kind of do the same thing. And one thing I want to point out, though, is that this has worked really well over the last number of years since 2017, because bonus depreciation has been at 100% from the tail end of 2017 all the way through the end of 2022. Now it's starting to phase out 20% per year. So this year in 2023, it's 80%. Next year, it'll be 60 2025 will be 40, 2026 will be 20, and then it'll be gone. So the power of the real estate professional status will still be there. But right now, over the next few years, it's going to be pretty powerful. Okay. I've seen some articles where it seems like there's talk still. The government's trying to decide what, what they want out of the world is coming out of this bonus depreciation and that maybe they'll bring some of it back instead of letting it completely go away. 
Right, right. So right now there's actually a bill that was proposed um, by the House. I think it's called Building America Act. And basically it proposes to extend 100% bonus depreciation through 2026. So basically there would be no step out or phase down. Beyond that, no one knows for sure. But a lot of people, a lot of tax professionals believe that they'll somehow, some way, figure out a way to extend it beyond 2026, whether it's 100% bonus depreciation or 50% or some form of bonus depreciation. A lot of people do not believe it's going to be going away in its entirety, but we'll see. We'll have to see. I mean, there's the awesome thing where you said, you know, tax professionals, because this is the stuff you do that where as a urologist, I have magazines on my desk that just come through all the time that even if every magazine's not that good, there's one article that I'm like, oh my goodness, I do that surgery. I'm going to try that. And it turns out to be something awesome. We're on the other side. I don't see what's going on in the tax world as much, but you see that every day. It's right in the middle of what you do. And so you're able to pass that benefit along as a tax professional, like a doctor passes along their medical judgment to their patients. Right, right. No, absolutely. That's kind of what we're reading between the lines right now as tax professionals saying this is probably going to happen, but until it happens, nothing is guaranteed. So so I want to just skip back to your podcast because when I was looking at it and I was like, wow, I should have been listening to this for years now. So what are some of the things you discuss on there and what really is the benefit to a listener to your show? Yeah. So that's a great question. So on the Tax Smart REI podcast, what we discuss is we discuss basically tax strategies for real estate investors. And we go in depth in some cases, like we have an entire like four episode series on the real estate professional status and on short-term rentals. And we also go into some more unique strategies like the 721 exchange, which people don't really talk about. We also interview industry experts on how they built their portfolio. So I guess in a nutshell, if you were going to listen to our podcast, you're going to come away really knowledgeable on what's available to you as a real estate investor to reduce tax, right? And then also at the same time, you're going to hear stories on how other people built their portfolio. So really great resource if you want to learn how to build tax advantage wealth. And so those stories too, again, that's one of those, I try to tell my kids this, it's like when you hear stories or books, it's usually not one that just changes your life, but you're getting these little pieces over and over and over again that ring home at different times. Right, right. You start hearing the same thing kind of from different angles and in different people's story, and you start realizing, okay, there's a pattern here. There's a pattern of success here. And if you follow that pattern of success, usually success will follow for you as well. That's awesome. So you've done both as a passive investor and a little more active. Is there anything in particular from a tax standpoint, if somebody's investing passively, that makes a difference to them from a tax standpoint is something that they should ask sponsors or syndicators. Right. There's a few questions I would say you want to ask them. First one, ask them, are they going to be doing a cost segregation study and using bonus depreciation? The answer to that question is usually yes, but you want to ask and verify because not always. That's a big deal because as a passive investor, you're going to get these losses, like uh, kind of as we described here today on the podcast, passed through to you via the form K-1 that you're going to receive as an investor. And that can be used to shelter your other rental income from tax as a passive investor. So, and also gains on the sale of passive investments. So that's something you're gonna to wanna to make sure you ask. You're also gonna ask how is depreciation allocated? Typically, because it depends on the deal, but usually it's pro rata. So like if the deal splits 70 to the investors, 30% to the sponsors, it'll typically be split like that. But sometimes some sponsors allocate it all to the investors. 
sometimes some sponsors allocate all to themselves. So it's really important to ask those questions. Another really important question to ask, I think, is it probably depends on what your investment strategy is as an investor, is do you allow investors to 1031 exchange into the next deal with you? In order to do a 1031 exchange as a limited partner, you need to do it with the sponsor. So the sponsor would say, okay, great, we're selling 123 Main Street. We're going to be 1031 exchanging into 123 you know, Gold Street or whatever. And if they might say, hey, to their investors, do you want to come along? We're going to do a 1031 exchange. If you come along, now you're 1031 exchanging your capital from the original deal you're in into the next one with them, and you're deferring your capital gain and continuing to build your wealth. So that's another great question to ask the sponsor. And the other one we talked about a little bit back about most people tend to just invest in their IRA or their employer-sponsored plan. How can people use a, a true self-directed IRA as an investment vehicle, or how is that different? I know when I first heard about self-directed IRAs, it was like the self-directed IRA on the Schwab site that I could pick my own stocks. But you can't go buy an apartment building or a syndication through Schwab. I guess you can because we put some in our pension plan, but you want to talk about a process that's long and painful is yeah. try and buy something that's not listed on the stock exchange through uh, one of those companies. So sorry, going back to the question, how to use a self-directed IRA and how that can benefit yeah, absolutely. So basically, a self-directed IRA is at its core no real different than any other IRA. The difference is the custodian, the custodian who holds the IRA on your behalf, they allow you to invest in alternative assets. Like So to your point, if you go to a Charles Schwab, as a custodian, they're only going to allow you to invest in a certain bucket of assets. But self-directed IRA custodians, they say you can invest in anything that's legally allowed to be invested in, take your pick. So Basically, in a nutshell, what that does, that allows you to go ahead and say, you know, instead of just having my assets, index funds or stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, I'm going to go ahead and invest my self-directed IRA money into a syndication or into a rental property that you're going to own. And the custodian of a self-directed IRA is going to allow you to do that. And that's kind of in a nutshell, what a self-directed IRA, how that kind of works. And then if somebody wanted other things, they can tell you whether that's legal to put in there. If it's Bitcoin or gold or right. yeah, okay. Absolutely. You could certainly put other things in there, but there's plenty of information online of what you can and can't invest in a self-directed IRA. But at the end of the day, you probably want to have a knowledgeable custodian. There's a lot of great ones out there that understand what you can and can't put in there so that you don't run afoul. Because if you break the rules, you do a prohibited transaction, as they call it, the IRS could take your entire account. So you want to make sure you're playing on the right side of the road. And that's what the custodians there to do effectively is they're there to kind of help you guide you and make sure you don't run afoul of any of the rules. So if somebody was new to all this, and this is the big fear as doctors that I find, because we're so used to being the experts and very malpractice aware. I got to do this right. I got to know everything before I venture out there. So this is something when I first heard about sounded kind of scary, and especially with the warning you gave, oh, if you mess this up, the IRS is just going to come and take the whole thing. And then you just write it off and go, okay, that's scary. Leave it away. Mm -hmm. So where would be the best place to start with finding a good custodian? Yeah, that's a great question. Probably communities of perhaps doctors or real estate investors that are already doing this, they're usually going to have custodians within their community they, they could help you, they could refer you to. 
Another good place to do it is the sponsors themselves. Oftentimes, sponsors will have custodians that can help you, guide you in the right direction, or you can go to a tax professional specialized in real estate. They should also have custodians that are able to help you. So I guess to kind of put it in a nutshell, you either want to go community, like find someone in a community who you could trust, ask sponsors, or go to a tax professional who knows the space, and they should be able to guide you in the right direction where to find a good custodian. So if somebody listened to this today said, man, this sounds great. I want to get started. Thomas sounds like a great guy. They could get in touch with you at Hall CPA and you could direct them towards established relationship with you. And that's something that you could direct them into a reliable self-directed IRA custodian. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to drop any names on here publicly. To, I don't want to disenchant anybody or promote anybody. But yeah, we do have several reputable companies that we do guide our clients towards when the situation is appropriate. Okay. Is that a relationship that you tend to work with a set group because now you have that relationship and it makes it easier for everything to flow back and forth also? Yeah, absolutely. I would suggest shopping around for it to a handful of different IRA companies, finding one that you're comfortable with. And then from there, you pretty much have that one relationship. Having multiple relationships with a self-directed custodian is going to make administrative stuff nightmare. So I would suggest finding one that you're really comfortable with, maybe one that's highly recommended, has good reviews, whatnot, and syncing in with them because they're going to be the ones you want to build that relationship up over time. Does it help streamline things when it comes to tax preparation time? Like if so, if you're the accountant, if you already have a relationship, because there's probably some that are easier to deal with and that are more efficient to get things back and forth. Yeah, absolutely. So usually when you're dealing with self-directed IRAs, there's not too many tax forms that you're going to have to deal with. There's something called Form 990T that you might have to file at some point. And the reason behind that is there's something called the Unrelated Business Income Tax, also known as UBIT. And if you're investing in real estate that's secured by debt financing through a self-directed retirement account, which could happen through a syndication, or if you buy the property yourself and use a loan, you could be subject to UBIT. Now, during the life of the property as you're holding it, it's usually uh, little to no UBIT throughout the transaction because the expenses offset the income. But at the end, when the property is sold, you might have some UBIT exposure. And at that point, a Form 990T will need to be filed. And having that open line of communication and having everything organized between the tax professional and the self-directed IRA company can make that whole entire process go a whole lot smoother. There's no doubt about it. Okay. So is that UBIT now, does that become something, this is something I haven't heard about before. Uh, if you're investing using debt through a self-directed IRA, does that make it something that is a big deal or is it just kind of a little deal? Well, it depends. It depends on the size <laughs> of the property and the size of the investment for sure. But usually it's not that significant. Like I've ran calculations and the calculations I've ran on a fifty dollars or $100,000 investment is typically not going to impact your returns too much, maybe 1% to 2% maybe on the investment returns over the life of the deal. So it's usually not too significant, but it's just something to be aware of that when you're investing in a self-directed IRA that has property that's financed by debt, that's not always 100% tax-free like as if it were a stock or a bond or a mutual fund within that account. So it's just something to be aware of and make sure that when you are investing in a self-directed IRA that A, you're aware of this and B, that your tax professional is also aware of it so they can guide you with any regulatory or compliance things that you may need to handle. Is that generally that if there's more leverage, there's potential for more tax on the back end than if there's less leverage? Yeah, no, for sure. And it kind of like not to get too much into the weeds of why this is, but basically the way they look at it is, is like when you're investing in an IRA in general, 
if you're putting your money in security, say you have 50K in your IRA, you drop into, I don't know, S&P 500, for example, you're not using anybody else's money. It's all your money. But now all of a sudden, when you're going and leveraging it, they're kind of like, now all of a sudden you're competing and you're leveraging it and going and buying property with it. You're like competing with non-cash businesses, if that makes sense. Like, I mean, other businesses have to pay tax. And now you're a business that doesn't have to pay tax, the IRA, for example, or the entity rather, is now competing with taxable people. Long story short, they didn't think that was fair. So like kind of how this UBIT tax kind of came into play, but it's usually not that big of a deal, but it does exist. So, Okay. Well, that's awesome. So if somebody wants to hear more of your stuff, we talked a little bit about your podcast again, which was? The Tax Smart Real Estate Investors Podcast. It's out pretty much Apple, YouTube, Spotify. You can find it on most platforms. All right. And we'll put your social media stuff in the show notes, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn. If somebody wanted to reach out to you to discuss more tax and accounting measures, what's the best way to reach out to you at? Yeah, that's going to be at therealestatecpa.com slash Thomas. And that's all my information, everything right there. If you want to connect, that's going to be the best place for that. All right. Well, is there anything else before we wrap up here? This has been a great conversation. There's so much more. I could talk for hours on real estate, but I think we covered a lot in this episode. The one thing I'll just leave it as, if you're investing in real estate and rental real estate specifically, you're starting to put yourself at the very least in a very good tax position. All right. Well, maybe we'll have to have you back on the show, though, and we can dig into the so much more or also check out Thomas's podcast. And it's there all the time available for you. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, no other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better, so I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. And number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help. Schedule a call. We can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.